All right, so uh, if you're visiting with us today, especially glad to have you. Um, if I have had a chance to meet you, I would love to, to meet you, um, to hear about how God led you to our church. And so after the service, um, I'll be down front. And if you have time, I'd love for you to stop by and, and introduce yourself to me. Um, we are wrapping up um, the sermon series, The Everyday Gospel. Today's the last Sunday in the series. And we're wrapping up the sermon series by looking at how the gospel impacts our lives in the midst of suffering. We've looked at how the gospel impacts things like marriage and parenting and work and finances. And today we're going to look at how the gospel informs and impacts our lives in the midst of suffering. So to get started, we've got to talk about what suffering is. Because for most of us, when we hear the word suffering, we have a very narrow definition of what that means and what it looks like. So for most of us, we think about traumatic events or you know, events of mass genocide or starvation or famine. And we think about the big events in our world that without dispute are events of suffering. Or we'll think about events in our own life, experiences we've had that were incredibly difficult, maybe walking through a difficult illness or walking with a family member through a difficult illness or maybe as a parent walking through a difficult season with one of your kiddos and and so for suffering for you it's very real but it still is a very narrow experience and so what do we mean when we say suffering so i want you to think of suffering this way suffering is any undesirable experience that causes physical or emotional pain mental anguish or social distress. Now, that's a really broad way to define suffering. There's another way I want you to think about suffering. Suffering is anything that you or I encounter in this life that will not be part of heaven. Okay? Suffering is anything that we encounter in this life that was not part of God's creation in Eden and won't be a part of our eternity in heaven, what we experience in between all the unpleasantness, all the darkness, the pain, the sorrow of this present life is suffering. Think about it. What God created in the garden was good. There was no suffering. And we look forward to the return of our Savior Jesus where he will bring an end to all suffering and in heaven there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. Now, suffering can happen at different levels. For some, suffering today might be a mild bout with depression or anxiety. Others of you, maybe you're facing a terminal illness or, again, walking with a family member or friend through something like a terminal illness, something devastating. Maybe you're walking through divorce or you're, you've got a child who's just walking in rebellion and, and breaking your heart daily by what they're posting on social media. and you know That's your suffering. But suffering is all the anguish, the unpleasantness of what we experience in between the garden and Christ's return and restoration of all things. I want to give you some categories to, to think about suffering. First of all, I want to think about what's called voluntary suffering, or it's also referred to as deserved suffering. This is suffering that results from a decision or a series of decisions that you make. Right, You make the bed and you sleep in it kind of thing. Right, So somebody who is in prison right now is suffering. Whether they deserve to be there or not, it's suffering. It's hard, it's scary, it's lonely, 
sometimes brutal and dark and ugly, it's suffering. If you don't believe me, go visit somebody and sit on the other side of the glass and talk with them. Now, that's deserved suffering. You did something, these are the results. So then the flip side of that is undeserved suffering, or what we might call innocent suffering. Suffering, and you did nothing to cause it. Like, again, like a terminal illness, like a cancer diagnosis, right? It's not your sin, specifically your sin, that caused the cancer. It's not right, your sin that specifically caused the diagnosis. It's happening regardless of your sin, right? So we would call that maybe an undeserved or innocent or involuntary suffering. There's a very specific suffering that the Bible talks about as it relates to Christians, and this is what we call righteous suffering or persecution. It's experiencing suffering because of what you believe, right? It could be as much as just being ostracized at work because you're the Christian and everybody else is not, and so they, they, they isolate themselves from you and you experience the kind of that, that, that idea of suffering there. Or it might be full-fledged, on the mission field, you know, fighting for your life kind of suffering. And Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so that's a very specific kind of suffering that you may encounter. Here's a couple of other things that I want you to think about. Fallen world or circumstantial suffering. Suffering that happens simply because we live in a fallen world. So like a hurricane, a natural disaster, wildfires. Now, we love to try to pin these on people, don't we? We love to take these things and make them somebody's fault, some political leader's fault, God's fault, but at the end of the day, it's part of living in a fallen world, right? The the world has a brokenness to it, and because we live in it, we encounter that brokenness on different levels. So there's a fallen world of circumstantial suffering. The last category I want to talk about Um, This morning, I want to be very cautious with because it's the category of divine suffering. We need to be very careful um, about the things that we pin onto God or blame God for and make sure that God through the Bible has revealed himself in that way. And so we want to talk about divine suffering. You think about God's involvement in suffering, it happens on two levels. On one level, it's allowed. So think about Job, right? God allowed that suffering to take place. Satan had to receive permission. God allowed it. So we have allowed suffering. But then we also have what we might call God-ordained suffering. Like God chose it. He did it, which comes to us in two forms. One is a sense of judgment, like what happened at the flood. Like God was behind the flood, not global warming. Now that was God. He said, I'm going to do this, and he did it, and it was an act of judgment there. Now, by God's grace and mercy, he allowed a remnant to live, and from there, right, we have the hope of eternity with God. Now, we also, the Bible talks about a final judgment, right, that where there will be, again, God-ordained suffering. But there's a last category of God-ordained suffering I want to talk about this morning, and it is not judgment or punishment. It is suffering that is part of God's discipline in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, God disciplines his children. Because he's a good dad. All good dads discipline their children. And when children are being disciplined, it feels painful at the moment. But because God is a good father, he disciplines us for our good. And that's another category of suffering. God-ordained suffering or hardship or trial that is God-ordained for our good. Now we're going to go to James chapter 1 and talk about how the gospel impacts suffering in our lives. Starting in verse 2, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now we're going to unpack these three verses together today. But we have to start with that first sentence, which blows me away every time I read it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, is not a normal English sentence. Right? Where else do you hear, hey, be happy about the difficulties you're facing in life. Find joy in suffering and hardship. And every time I read it, it catches me off guard. And I have to ask the question of James, what are you saying? What do you mean? Find joy in suffering. Consider it joy in suffering. I think it's important for us to understand where joy comes from. Listen, this is just a basic, boiled-down definition of where joy comes from. Joy is the result of finding something better. That's where joy comes from. Real joy comes from finding something better. That applies to God and it applies to pizza, right? So like if I'm a, a pizza guy and I love pizza and I've got my favorite pizza place, if I discover a place with better pizza, I'm going to be full of joy. Why? Because I found something better, right? Now take that and apply it now to the bigger areas of life. Joy is the result of finding something better. We looked at this uh, two weeks ago with the parable where um, in Matthew 13, Jesus is talking about the guy who finds the treasure hidden in a field. So this guy finds this treasure hidden in a field, and in his joy, he goes home and sells everything. Why? Because what he found was better than what he had at home, so he goes home and sells everything in his joy and comes back and buys the field. You see how that principle applies? So joy is the result of finding something better So then, what... James is saying then is that we should count it or consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. Why? Because our trials are leading us to something better. Now, if you want to follow along in the sermon notes or fill in the blanks, we have some for you today, those of you who are filling the blankers. Before we get to the first blank, let's talk about another, another component to suffering and, and God's involvement. It has to do with redemption. Now, we throw that word around a lot as a church culture, and we, we use it a lot here. We've got a ministry called Redemption Groups, and we share testimonies periodically, and we call them redemption stories. So what is redemption from a biblical perspective? Redemption is the process, process by which God takes something that is broken and restores it and makes it better than it originally was. Okay, so not a fixer-upper, not almost as good as it was, better than it was. You follow me? That's redemption. That's when we use that word as Christians. That's what we mean. God takes something broken and makes it better. One of, uh, we can think of a number of biblical examples where God is working out something better. So you think the story of Israel, right? So God rescues the nation of Israel out of slavery, but he doesn't just rescue them out of slavery. slavery. He rescues them to the promised land. And the journey to get there is difficult, right? There's a lot of testing that takes place between Egypt and right, the promised land, but ultimately God was leading them through difficulties and suffering to something better, right? Even think about Job. Think about all that Job went through. What, was, what in the world was God doing in Job's life that, life that was better? 
Well, namely and most specifically, he increased Job's capacity to worship. If you read the last couple of chapters of Job, you're going to see a man who's humble to his knees, and whatever view he used to have of God, whatever his worship used to look like, it's exponentially bigger. And so God was leading Job to better worship. Look at Jonah. What was going on with Jonah? Why, why is that story in the Bible? And we see, again, God working through Jonah's suffering to ultimately right, bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It was for the good of Nineveh that they would come to understand the God of Israel is a forgiving God for those who repent. So Jonah's suffering was leading to something better, both for him and the people of Nineveh. Of course, Jesus himself suffered. Right? The most brutal example of suffering Physical pain, spiritual pain, emotional pain, betrayal, torture. Jesus endured that suffering to bring about something better for us. Joseph is probably one of my favorite stories of redemption. I just love the way God prompted Joseph's heart to describe his own redemption. If you don't know the story of Joseph, he, was, uh, he had a lot of brothers, but he was the youngest. And, uh, and so therefore, he was dad's favorite. And so the older brothers really had had enough of Joseph. And so they put together this scheme to oust Joseph. And first they're going to like throw him in this pit and kill him and just leave him for dead. And they're like, no, nah, let's don't do that. Let's do something different. That, you know, dad will see through those plans. So let's, let's sell him into slavery. Um, and then let's take his coat home with some blood on it and say some animals killed our little brother dad. We're so sorry. So that's what they do. Well, that happens in, in the book of Genesis, and by the time you get to the end, Joseph has found favor with Pharaoh, and he's in a position of power now. He goes from slavery to like a right, right-hand man of Pharaoh. And simultaneously, his brothers with his dad are back home in the midst of a severe famine. They don't have any food. So now their only option is to come to Pharaoh and to beg for mercy that, they, that Pharaoh might give them some food. Well, guess who they have to speak to? Little brother. And so now the tables have turned, and they come back to Joseph, and then they're like, Dad, what do we do? Because it's Joseph. And Dad's like, listen, guys, you need to go and repent, and you need to ask your brother for forgiveness. Now listen, this is, we'll pick up on the last few verses of this, starting in Genesis 50, verse 17. Here's the advice. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now... Please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. So that's what they say to Joseph. This is what dad told us to do. Please forgive us. We've really messed up. Look at Joseph's response. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Was he over the pain of what they did? No. He was still feeling the brokenness of their betrayal and selling him out and all that he went through and starting out as a slave. And, but look at what he says. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Two parallel realities. What you did to me, you meant it for evil. That was your intent. But at the same time, there was another reality, God's reality. He took what you meant for evil, and he meant it and used it for my good. That's redemption. Listen to what he says. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. See, that's redemption. God taking evil, God taking brokenness and making it better than it was before it was broken. There is a a good illustration of this uh, found in the Japanese culture. Um, It's the ancient Japanese art of what's called kintsugi. Now, I may not be pronouncing that correctly, so if you speak Japanese, please come correct my pronunciation. Kintsugi, though, in English translates golden joinery. And this ancient art was developed in a time where pottery really was, you know, one of the most prized possessions you could have, a nice piece of pottery because you put water in it or wine in it or grain in it or valuables in it. It was really important to have pottery. Well, pottery is kind of fragile, and so pottery breaks. And so in the process of being a culture of, of, you know, where pottery is important, they began to develop processes of putting pottery back together. And what the ancient Japanese discovered was that the harder you try to weld pottery back together and, and make the flaws invisible, um, the, the more the flaws stand out. The more you try to polish it up and paint it up and clean it up and repaint it and re-dye it or re-stain it, the more the flaws just kind of glare at you. And so rather than trying to hide the flaws, the Japanese culture said, what if we did something different? What if we accentuate the flaws? What if we took gold dust and mixed it with our paste and our glue? And instead of trying to hide what was broken, what if we used that to weld together the pottery? And this is this ancient art of kintsugi. Taking something that was broken, putting it back together in such a way that it's more beautiful and more valuable than it was before. We've got a picture of this. Look at this. See, that's what redemption looks like. You know, God's redemption in your life doesn't hide what you've been through. Right? God's not just erasing memories and pretending like nothing happened. But see, God takes what was intended for evil, what was intended to break you, and he puts it back together and makes it more valuable. He makes it more beautiful than it was before it happened. That's what redemption looks like. We see it in, over and over again in the stories of the Bible. If you're taking notes, God uses suffering in our lives to lead us to the joy of finding something better. God uses suffering in our lives to lead us to the joy of finding something better. Now, that's what James is talking about. Consider it joy when you face trials because God is leading you to something better. Specifically, here's what James says. You know, this is verse 3 of James 1, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, steadfastness um, means an idea of constancy or endurance. It's another way to translate that word. So through our suffering, God is producing endurance, constancy, and steadfastness in some capacity or some way. When you keep reading the book of James, you see very specifically that that James is talking about two specific things. He's talking about our faith, a constancy and an endurance in our faith, and our doctrine, what we believe, and how those two things go together hand in hand. And so the word James used here, he says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for for you know that the testing of your faith. So that word testing um, could also be translated refinement or proving, okay? So it's this process of of removing impurities, removing what is weak, removing what doesn't belong from something. 
So when you refine like precious metal, like gold, for example, right, you have to heat it up with fire. And as you do that, the impurities come to the surface and, and burn off. But on the inside, what's solidifying is the pure gold, right? Free from impurities, free from voids, free from things that don't belong. So what James is talking about is that the testing of our faith refines our, our faith in that same way. The testing or refinement of our faith. What he's saying is this, God redeems your suffering. Whether you caused it, somebody else caused it, a tornado caused it, God redeems our suffering by refining our faith. Well, why do we need our faith refined? I mean, don't I have enough faith to be saved? Why do I need my faith to be refined? Well, the Bible talks about our, our growth as Christians, the sanctification process, what we see is this beautiful imagery of, of like a tree growing, including our faith. Did you know your faith grows? Your faith in God? Your faith in, in God over time will grow. And what James is saying is God uses your suffering to actually refine your faith and bring it to a place of maturity. So what is God removing from our faith? What's he refining out of our faith? Well, most obviously, our doubts because we still have doubts. How do I know you have doubts? Because I know when you encounter suffering, one of the first things we do is we doubt. Does God still love me? Is God still real? Is God still on his throne? Right, we ask those questions, why? Because infused in our faith, right, are these little pockets, these little seeds of doubt. Look at what James says in verses five through eight. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in what? Faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. What imagery? Like a wave. It's hard to define where a wave is, isn't it? Like, right? Because it's just a movement of water, and it's moving, and you think you're seeing the wave, but you're actually seeing water that wasn't moving before, and the water you saw is over here, and it's hard to define where a wave is. He says, that's how faith is when we allow doubt to be infused in what we believe. We're like this wave being tossed out in the ocean by the wind. And so as James talks about the refinement of our faith, he's talking about the refinement of our doubt. That slowly but surely, impurity after impurity, our doubt would be removed. Jesus talks about an endurance of faith, which I think is also what James is talking about. And if you remember, we're in Matthew 10, Jesus is talking about um, sending his disciples out among the wolves. This is uh, Matthew 10. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and, and innocent as doves. But beware, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to wear, bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That's righteous suffering, isn't it? That's persecution. And look at what Jesus says in verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is what James is talking about. This is where God builds endurance of faith through trials. Just think about that for a minute. So what does it look like that God is refining 
our faith in removing doubts. I want you to have an imagery in mind that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7. It's a really simple um, kind of picture of what happens when we face trials. He says, you know, it's kind of like a man who hears my words and does them. It's kind of like the guy who builds his house on the solid rock. And when the storm comes, the trials or the suffering and blows against his house, the house stands. It doesn't, it's stable. It doesn't go anywhere. But the guy who hears my words and then doesn't do them, he's kind of like the guy who builds his house on the sand. And when the storm comes, it just shatters the whole thing apart. Well, for most Christians, we, we kind of stand somewhere in between. Right? Our faith is in the gospel of Jesus, these solid rocks around us. We know Jesus died for our sins. We know he's the holy son of God. We know these biblical truths, and they're part of who we are and our faith. But you know what we do, especially as Americans along the way? We grab bricks of untruths and add them to the wall of truth. We grab bricks of things we want to be true about God, and we add them to our faith. We add them to our wall. We listen to false teachings, and we think, I like that. I think I'll add that to my faith. And what happens when the storm blows and the walls begin to rattle is parts parts of it start to come apart, don't they? Right? Our false belief, our false doctrine, our doubts begin to come to the surface. It's a refinement process. And we go through suffering. We say, well, you know, if, if God is really loving, how can he allow suffering? That's a crisis of faith, isn't it? God is refining your faith in that moment, what you believe to be true about him. So we know God is redeeming our suffering by refining our faith. In a very specific way, God redeems our suffering by producing stability and endurance in our faith. Stability and endurance. So that we're no longer a wave in our faith, just tossed over here and tossed over there. Some days I'm on fire and I believe in God, and other days I'm doubting. God says, no, 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 I'm going to use the trials to, to shore up and secure and solidify what you believe about me, which then goes hand in hand with our doctrine. Right? So just believing something doesn't make it true. Did you know that? And not believing something doesn't make it untrue. And as we just talked about, as Christians, we're in the process of being refined, not just our faith, but the doctrines of what we believe to be true. Now don't, don't let the word doctrine scare you, okay? That's simply a word that describes what you believe about God. So we all have a doctrine in here, okay? Whatever you believe to be true about God is your doctrine. Even if you believe God isn't real, that's your doctrine, Okay, and so what God does through the process of testing our faith is he refines what we believe to be true. And we have to ask ourselves questions, right? We put a brick in the wall that, you know, if God loved us, he wouldn't let us go through suffering. But then we go through suffering and we have to ask ourselves, does that brick belong in the wall? Right? And so we leave behind then false doctrines and false teachings. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 4. The apostle Paul is speaking and teaching And he's talking about how the church comes alongside the members of the church to produce maturity in them. But listen to what he says. This is starting in verse 11. He says, And he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. Okay, those are church leaders. To equip the saints, that's the church members, to or for the work of ministry. It's a very simple equation. God did not give leaders to the church to do the ministry or to be the people who get all the credit. God gives leaders to the church to equip the body to do the ministry so that no man gets any glory, including the lead pastor and the elders and the worship leader and the community group leaders, right? Look at what he says. When this happens, 
when the, when the saints are doing ministry, it's, it's for the building up of the body of Christ. It's this idea of spiritual growth until we all attain two things, unity of the faith, which we just talked about, refining our faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's our doctrine. That's what we believe to be true about Jesus. So that's what's being built up, and then listen to this. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14 is what I want you to hear right now, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what James said? But this time he's talking about doctrine, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So in the same way God wants you to have a solidified faith that isn't shaken when the storm comes, he wants to solidify your doctrine, what you believe to be true about him. Right? This is where a, a, a me-centric version of Christianity begins to unravel in the midst of suffering. If I buy into this idea that God is all about me and I'm the center of the universe and God is for me and this is all about me, then in the midst of suffering, that doctrine begins to unravel, doesn't it? If I have a doctrine that presents God as like a, a genie in the bottle or the cosmic Santa Claus, and if I just pray three times and click my heels together, he does what I want him to do, right? that begins to come unraveled in the midst of suffering, what's happening? My doctrine is being refined. The impurities are being burned away. The things that are not true are being knocked down and being replaced with solid truths so that I'm no longer tossed to and about, to and fro. It's like a ship on the sea. One minute I believe this and one minute I believe that. So God redeems our suffering by solidifying our doctrine, what you believe to be true about God. And he uses trials of various kinds to do that. Now, where he ends is with this word perfect. He ends by saying this. He says, let uh, faith produce a steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. So what's the full effect? Here it is, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Ephesians 1.6 says that as a Christian, I'm in the process of becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? Philippians 1.6 says what? I'm sure of this. He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So until Jesus returns, I'm in this process of being made complete, being made perfect. And that's what James is talking about here. If we go back to Ephesians 4, what's beautiful about Ephesians 4 is you know, Paul says in verse 11, God gave all these leadership positions to the church to equip the members of the body for ministry. And when that happens, it creates this beautiful context of redemption, this beautiful context of biblical community. So part of God working in my life to redeem my suffering means I need to be engaged in Ephesians 4, surrounded by other saints, being built up, right? And so what did he say in Ephesians 4? That we are, verse 13, we're being built up until we all attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Listen to these words. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You're not being conformed or transformed or grown into a better version of you. You're being matured into the image of Christ. That's better than you. Follow me? 
And ultimately, that's what James is saying. The full effect of trials in your life as a believer is God is bringing about maturity in Christ. I mean, that's good news for marriages, isn't it? That's good news for parenting. That's good news for the workplace, right? That God's followers are being transformed into the image of Jesus. My wife needs that more than she needs a better version of me. I can guarantee you that. She needs me to be more like Christ. And this is what's happening in our lives through suffering. God redeems our suffering to produce in us maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ. Now we take a step back and go, I get what you're saying now, James. You're not saying that trials of various kinds are going to be fun. You're not saying that they won't have pain. What you're saying is that by faith, because I know these things are true, I can consider them joy because they're leading me to something better. I think it's so important as a church and as Christ's followers, when we talk about suffering, we do so with great delicacy because suffering is painful. Regardless of whether or not you think your suffering measures this person's suffering, all suffering is painful. Right? It's it's dark. It's lonely. It's heart-wrenching. It's scary. And so we should never take lightly our suffering and especially anybody else's suffering. If you take a step back, though, when you look at the big picture of the story of the Bible... When we encounter suffering, we, we often ask this question, like the big question is, where's God in the midst of suffering? If God is loving, how can he allow suffering? And, and what really went on at the fall? You know, there are really only two options you can have when you think about the fall of Genesis 3. Either God created the world good and perfect and then sent it on its way, and then one chapter later, it messes itself up, and then God spends the rest of the Bible trying to fix what was broken, Or God in his infinite wisdom created the world that was good and planned redemption before the fall ever happened. And he allowed the fall because it led to something better. And the Bible paints a portrait of God that says he's infinitely wise and he's never caught off guard. He's infinitely powerful and sovereign. And the universe is not just something he interacts with, it fits in the palm of his hand, including the fall, including you, including me. That's the portrait we get at the end of Job, this magnificent, immeasurably holy, infinitely powerful God. So my conclusion is this. God allowed the fall as a part of his infinitely wise plan for humanity to take what was very good in creation and make it better. One of my my favorite singer-songwriters slash theologians is a guy named Andrew Peterson. And he has a song that's entitled, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And the song is about, even though the world is dark and broken, there are these glimpses of hope that we see, like the the face of a a newborn child. You see that, and you just want to thank someone for that. Or, you know, that, 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 that act of kindness, or maybe your spouse comes to you in selflessness and just does something sweet for you, and it just causes your heart to want to thank someone. 
But he has a line about redemption that I want to read to you. And he's talking about the second coming of Christ when Jesus comes to make all things right. Here's what he says. He says, and when the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing, a better thing, to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. Like the ancient Japanese art, to be redeemed by love and be put back together in such a way that it's more beautiful, more valuable than it was. Like Joseph's life, right? Where brokenness and and hardship and suffering and disloyalty and betrayal and pain and slavery, he looks at it all and says, yeah, you meant to break me, brothers. But while you were trying to break me, God was restoring me. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. And he put this broken story back together in such a way that what we have now is better than what we had before. To be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. God is using the hardship, trials, and suffering in your life to lead you to something better. God is refining and stabilizing your faith. He is solidifying your doctrine, and he is producing the maturity of Christ in you. That's why you look back on suffering and say, I'm thankful I went through it, though I would never want to go through it again. But we never say that in the midst of it, do we? We never say that before it happens. We always say that in hindsight. And what James is saying, Christ followers, we have enough information to know God is sovereign and good. We can say that on the onset. We can consider it joy before it happens or while it's happening, not just after it happens. I want to end here and and I just want to let you know, if you're going through something right now that's incredibly difficult, God sees your suffering. He does. I'm telling you, he sees your suffering. And I can't tell you specifically what he's doing in your life, but I can tell you by faith, he's redeeming your suffering to lead you to something better. Okay? And I don't know what better is going to be for you, but I, I believe in God and I believe in his word. And if that's you, listen, let us come around you as a church. If you're in a community group, let your community group know what's going on. If you're not in a community group, let our prayer partners know what's going on. Let us walk out Ephesians 4 with you, do the work of ministry, surround you a biblical community, and be a part of the refinement process of God's redemptive work in your life. So we're going to pray now, and I'm going to invite our prayer partners and our worship team to come up. Our prayer partners will be at the front and at the back. If there's something going on in your life that's just painful this morning, would you let somebody pray with you? Let the church surround you and pray over you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you've been kicking the tires on Christianity for a while and you get confused because this church believes this or this church believes that. Listen, God unapologetically wants you to know who he is. We talked about today, this is is the God we worship and love and serve. He does allow pain in our lives, but it always leads to our good and his glory. And if you're here today and you're wondering, can I trust this God? Listen, I'm going to pray that you'll make that decision to take that step of faith and trust in Jesus today. Okay? You don't have to to be free from all your doubts. We just read about it. He's going to refine you over time. 
He's going to work that stuff out with you. You don't have to have all your beliefs together. What he says is this. If you will trust in my son Jesus, believe in his death and resurrection for you, you will be saved. Let's start there. I'm going to pray for us now, and and, and my hope is that you'll respond however God's leading you today. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we are so thankful that you don't hide yourself from us. God, you don't leave it up to speculation about where you are in the midst of suffering or what you're doing in the midst of suffering. Thank you, God, that you are a loving Father and that you meet us in our suffering to work in us, to refine us, and to lead us to something better. God, this morning we pray you would continue to speak to us as we begin to sing. Your Holy Spirit would move through our hearts. Give us the faith to trust you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.